This podcast is produced by Secure World Foundation, an endowed private operating foundation that promotes cooperative solutions for space sustainability and the peaceful uses of outer space. The podcast is released under a Creative Commons attribution non-commercial license. For more information, please visit swfound.org. Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome. Thank you for coming. My name is Victoria Sampson. I'm the Washington Office Director for the Secure World Foundation, a private operating foundation that focuses on cooperative solutions for space sustainability. I chose to have this event today, November 3rd, in honor of poor little Leica, who became 54 years ago the first dog on orbit. It is a reminder of how the Russian space program used to be filled with firsts. The first to put a satellite up in space. The first to put a man in space. First put a woman in space. The first to hold a spacewalk, and so forth. Russia is still a major space power. In fact, some may call it the forgotten giant. Russia is the only way, for example, that the United States can currently get its astronauts to the space station. In fact, yesterday, the Progress 45 spacecraft was able to dock with the space station, bringing supplies to the crew. However, the Russian space program has many questions surrounding it. Before yesterday's successful docking, Russia had had a series of problems of mission failures and quality control issues. A notable crash occurred in August, using the same Soyuz rocket that was used for yesterday's Progress 45 spacecraft. Another serious crash happened in December, plunging three GLONASS satellites into the Pacific Ocean. As a result, one of the head designers of the spacecraft manufacturer, Energia, was fired, as well as a major head of Roscosmos. Furthermore, this is all happening when other countries are becoming major space powers, complicating the discussion for how best to achieve space sustainability. This is a goal that the Secure World Foundation has long worked toward. No matter what happens, Russia's efforts in space have shaped international discussions on space and security, and their plans for space will continue to affect the international debate. Hence today's discussion. We are pleased to start off with Marcia Smith, of SpacePolicyOnline.com, informally the Congressional Research Service, who will discuss Russia's historical space program and how parts of it morphed into its current civil space program. We will next discuss Anatoly Zak of RussiaSpaceWeb.com and author of the upcoming book, The Next Sputniks, The Russia's Space Plans Revealed, as he discusses Russia's military space capabilities and perceptions. Finally, we will have the Secure World Foundation's own Tiffany Chow, who will be speaking about her experiences and insights gained from working with the Russians in international fora and space and security issues. Marcia? Thank you, Victoria. And uh, I'm really delighted to be here today, and I thank the invitation from the Secure World Foundation. And it is a special pleasure for me today to be on stage with Anatoly Zak. Uh, I, I think we feel like we've known each other for decades because we've been reading each other's stuff. And so uh, I, I would just like to recommend to you, in case you didn't hear uh, Victoria's announcement of his website, RussianSpaceWeb.com, if you if you want to know a really really good site website to go to to get it straight from the horse's mouth, that is an excellent site for information about the Russian space program in English. So uh, I thank you very much for having me here today. And uh, we all have impossible tasks because we've been asked to speak on complex topics in 15 to 20 minutes. Mm -hmm. So I apologize in advance if I speak too quickly 
or if I don't mention some topic that you really wanted to hear about, but I really had to do triage in order to cut this down uh, from the 50 slides that I had to the probably 18 or so that I have now. So the title of this is Russia's Civil Space Program with civil in quotes. And one of the reasons for that is that civil space activities really was an American invention in the creation of NASA and the NASA Act where we divided space into the civil activities done by NASA and the military activities done by DOD. But not all countries with space programs have seen this dividing line and the Soviet Union really did not make a distinction between civil and military space activities until 1985. The line between the two, even here, can be quite blurry, and it's quite blurry in Russia today. So when Victoria and I talked about how to divide up the tasks for today, we decided that civil would be the Soviet and Russian activities that are most analogous to what happens at NASA and NOAA. Uh, unfortunately, I don't have time to talk much about the, Ru the Russian Meteorological Satellite Program today, but they do have one, so they do have activities like NOAA's. Roscosmos is the name of the Russian Civil Space Agency. It's headed by a retired Army General, Vladimir Popovkin. Popovkin, I can't pronounce it correctly. Popovkin. And uh, he is the successor to the person that Victoria mentioned in her introductory remarks, who was fired because of, among other things, the GLONASS uh, launch failure and other reasons that the Russian government decided that he should no longer uh, be head of that agency. Uh, I don't have good numbers, and Anatoly may have better numbers, but the best numbers I've come up with so far is that the Roscosmos annual budget is around $3.5 billion, but I think that that is just what the Russian government gives to them. It does not include money that they get from the U.S. government and from other people, who commercial launches and the space tourists and all of that. But it is, by comparison with NASA, of course, a very modest budget. So in my, my brief, quick talk today, I thought I would put up in the beginning the key points that I hope that you will walk away with at the end of my presentation. The first and most important point is that space cooperation takes place within a broader context of U.S.-Russian relationships. A lot of people in the space program get so wrapped up in the narrow stovepipe of space that they forget that there is a much bigger picture that the U.S. government is always looking at when it's looking at international cooperation with any country, including Russia. So it is important to remember that Russia is, so, someone decided that Russia no longer was a superpower. I'm sure there's some academic definition of a superpower, but I consider any country that can annihilate the rest of the world in 30 minutes to be a superpower. So I consider Russia to still be a superpower just like we are. And, uh, and they are a very important global power and very important to the United States and a lot of its foreign policy interests. Uh, to Examples of that are the New START Treaty, which was so important to President Obama that he was willing to trade off taxes on the rich in order to get the Senate to ratify the New START Treaty because we are so interested in having these uh, nuclear arms reductions treaties with Russia. And on the other hand, there's INCSA, the Iran-North Korea-Syria Non-Proliferation Act, which was passed by Congress first in the year 2000. And that is a law that tries to encourage Russia not to proliferate technologies to countries like Iran, North Korea, and Syria that could pose uh, threats to the United States. So we do have this complex relationship with Russia as we do with most countries in the world, and you have to bear that in mind when you're talking about U.S. and Russian space cooperation. The Russian space program of today is very modest by Soviet standards, but they did retain key elements of their program. 
they're leveraging their existing capabilities for their current activities and for commercial gain. And it is a global launch service provider. Uh, one advantage that Russia has gained over the past 20 years since the collapse of the Soviet Union is access to launch sites closer to the equator. Uh, during the Soviet era, their two main launch sites were Baikonur and Plesetsk, which they still have, but they're at northern latitudes. But uh, after that, they became a partner in Sea Launch, which of course went bankrupt, but has now come back as mostly a Russian company, and they can tow their uh, platform down to the equator. And as of just a couple of weeks ago, they now are launching the Soyuz from Kourou in French Guiana. So they do have an impressive launch capability and access to launch sites from the Arctic to the equator. As Victoria mentioned, they have a proud history of space firsts, but not all the firsts were good ones. Some of them were tragedies. And they do have launch failures, just like we do. There seems to be an impression that all Russian launch vehicles are 100% reliable, and they're not. They have their failures, just like ours have failures, and that's the way it is in the rocket business. The relationship between the U.S. and, uh, and Russia has transitioned from the competition of the 60s and 70s and part of the 80s into a more interdependent relationship today. And even though the Russian space program is not as robustly funded as it once was, the dreams are still there, just as they are here in the United States. They still want to send astronauts off to the moon and Mars, and right now they are in the waning days of their Mars 500 experiment, experience, whatever you would call it, where they've had uh, six cosmonauts, three Russians, two Europeans, and a Chinese locked away f for actually 520 days to simulate a human mission to Mars. So they are actually doing things like that in, to advance their interest in it, even if they don't really have the money to start such a mission today. So as Victoria mentioned, today is the 54th anniversary of the first female in space, Laika. It was sadly a one-way trip. The Soviets launched her when they knew how to put things into space, but not how to bring them back from space. So they knew from the beginning that Laika was going to be a martyr to the cause, and, uh, and she didn't live very long, but she was the first animal into orbit and certainly signified at the various early stages of the Soviet space program that they intended to launch people into space. I don't have time to go through the long, long lists of, uh, of Soviet space firsts, but here are just a couple of them. And I've highlighted in red a couple of the ones that I think people have forgotten about. I do occasionally hear uh, knowledgeable space policy people talk about Skylab being the first space station. And of course it was the first American space station. It was not the first space station. The Soviets had that on their list of firsts with the Soviet 1 in 1971. They also were the first ones to launch somebody from another country into space, Vladimir Remek of Czechoslovakia. And space tourism is not new either. Uh, space tourism predates the International Space Station. They launched the first space tourist, a journalist from Japan, Mr. Yakiyama in 1990. So the, the Russians have learned from the very early days of, of their new reality as uh, Russia instead of the Soviet Union how to uh, make some money off of their space assets. They've also had space firsts in space science and applications but not as many. But again I've highlighted the ones in red that I think most people have forgotten about. They were the first ones to return samples robotically from the moon. They landed robotic rovers on the moon. They soft landed on Venus. 
They orbited Venus and sent images back from the surface, all as firsts. They also were the first country to have a domestic communication satellite system. It's not the geostationary systems that we're accustomed to here in the States, because mostly the United States is at lower latitudes. What the Soviets needed was a system that would serve the polar regions, because so much of uh, the Soviet Union and Russia are at the northern latitudes. So they uh, have used a different orbit from the beginning called the Molniya orbit, which has a long linger time over the poles. Uh, in later decades, they did also start using geostationary satellites, but they used this Molniya orbit initially, and they still use it today. As I mentioned, not all of their firsts were good ones. They did have the first cosmonaut to uh, die in a space flight on the first Soyuz launch in 1967. They had a launch abort during the launch. In fact, it was not that dissimilar from the August 24th Soyuz launch failure uh, very recently when it was launching a Progress cargo ship to the space station and they had a third stage failure. The Progress spacecraft from all appearances seems to have burned up uh, after that but of course a Soyuz spacecraft is designed to survive re-entry and on uh, Soyuz 18A which at the time was called the April 5th anomaly because it happened on April 5th 1975, uh, the crew did uh, land and was recovered after their third stage failure. Uh, they have actually had to use an abort tower like we used to have in Mercury, Gemini, and Apollo and will have again uh, in order to pull a crew away from a spacecraft at the launch pad when the rocket they were atop caught on fire. And that crew was also successfully recovered and they pulled a lot of Gs, but uh, they did fly again. Uh, they had the first collision between a spacecraft and a space station and uh, that did uh, damage irrevocably the Spectre module but uh, the, the rest of the Mir space station did remain operational after that, and uh, they also had the first serious fire on a space station. So all of these, of course, add to one's experience base. So although in some cases this resulted in the loss of life, and in other cases they were survivable, they do, they have racked up quite a lot of human spaceflight experience over these years that obviously is helping in the operations of the International Space Station and whatever comes next. So since it's impossible to summarize 54 years worth of Soviet and Russian civil space experience in a short time, I'm just going to focus on three, three major topics, human spaceflight rockets and space science, and then I'm going to finish by talking about the interdependence of our programs today. Just to briefly remind everybody about the rivalry that characterized the first decades of the U.S. and Soviet relationship. The Soviets were first out of the box launching Yuri Gagarin into space on April 12, 1961. And we followed, of course, with Alan Shepard's flight, which was suborbital, and I won't go through all that happened since then, but basically the United States moved out very quickly with the Gemini and Apollo programs, and we landed on the moon in 1969. Uh, the Soviets, and John Logsdon is here, and he can tell you more about his book where he talks about the early discussions with, of John F. Kennedy and Premier Khrushchev about cooperating on the Apollo program, but the Soviets declined to come in with us on the Apollo program. And they began their own human lunar program, but they never were able to achieve that goal of sending uh, cosmonauts to the moon. So they have focused on Earth orbit for all of these years, and that's how they have uh, accumulated such extensive experience in operating in Earth orbit. 
We landed on the moon, but then we lost interest. Uh, the last Apollo flight was the Apollo Soyuz Test Project, the first human spaceflight cooperative program between the U.S. and the Soviet Union. And, uh, and then we ended the Apollo program, and we did not launch any more astronauts into space for six years. And I find that there are a lot of people who are surprised to discover that there was a six-year period when the U.S. did not launch anybody into space. I get uh, this question about whether or not it is true that President Obama is the first president to, uh, to cause, I can't think of the right words, it's an internet thing that's going around, but they're blaming President Obama for the fact that for the first time the U.S. cannot launch people into space. And I point out to them that we've already done this for six years, so it's not even a new thing, never mind who to blame for our current situation, but it's not new. So, they have a lot of experience. The longest a cosmonaut has stayed in orbit continuously is 14 months. So, as I said, whatever comes next in human spaceflight, it will obviously benefit the United States or whoever wants to partner with Russia to benefit from their experience. And I'll just leave this slide up for a second so you can be reminded as to all the space stations and flights of Progress and Soyuz that have taken place over the many years, uh, just again as an example of their experience. When the Soviet Union collapsed in 1991, it obviously was a new reality for their space program. They had to very quickly do triage and decide what was most important to keep. The first things to go were their space shuttle program, Buran, which never flew with a crew aboard. It only flew once at all, and it was uncrewed. And the big booster that they had developed to launch it, the Energia booster, also was discontinued at that time. Their space science program withered. They had one remaining flagship mission on their, uh, on their list, the Mars 96 mission, and unfortunately that did not leave Earth orbit. They discovered that their major launch site, Baikonur, was no longer in Russia. It was in a different country, Kazakhstan. <laughs> so they had to work out lease arrangements with Kazakhstan, and to this day, they still lease it from Kazakhstan. And they are planning to build another launch site called Vostochny uh, to take care of some of the business that they currently do with Baikonur. But I do think Baikonur is going to remain an integral part of the Russian space program indefinitely. And they were very quick to appreciate that you could make money by launching things commercially and that if they wanted to continue their human spaceflight program, since they didn't have money to build a space station of their own to replace Mir, that they were going to have to do that on a cooperative basis. The George H.W. Bush and Clinton administrations uh, used this as a carrot to work with the new Russia uh, the U.S. goal was to help Russia in transitioning to democracy, and we wanted to do what we could to make sure that Russian scientists didn't go and start work for countries that did not have U.S. best interests at heart. And so uh, during the Bush and Clinton administrations, we did reach agreements with Russia, and they have led to the International Space Station cooperation that we have today. Mark Albrecht has recently written a book about the uh, Bush administration and the space program that talks about sort of uh, what was really going on behind the scenes between the White House and, and Russia during that era when they were developing these agreements. And I highly commend the book to you. It's a personal memoir. It's not an academic book, but it does talk about Mark's experiences. He was the director of the National Space Council at the White House at the time, and it really is quite revealing, and I, I really do commend the book to you. So turning to space science, space science is uh, an area where Russia has, or the Soviet Union has really checked all the boxes. They've launched this kind of observatory and that kind of observatory. They've sent 
missions to the moon and to Mars and to Venus. They've never tried going in as far as Mercury or out past Mars, but they have done planetary exploration. They had a mission to Halley's Comet, which the U.S. did not, by the way. So they have done all of these things, but there really are no transformative space science results that I know of that came from these efforts. So they've had sort of a, a steady space science program, but nothing on the order of, say, the Hubble Space Telescope. After the collapse of the Soviet Union, what they did have in space science pretty much withered, and uh, it's really just coming back into its own right now. They finally launched the Spectrum-R radio astronomy satellite just in June. That was a mission that was supposed to have been launched about 20 years ago, and they are talking now about additional observatories in different wavelength bands that they plan to launch over the next couple of years. But everyone's attention right now was focused on the next Russian Mars mission. They have just been jinxed at Mars. They've launched a lot of probes there, and back in the old days, if they had a failure, they just wouldn't tell you that it was a failure, and they would give it a bland cosmos designation instead of telling you that it was really intended for Mars. But even the ones that they admitted were headed to Mars, there really were no unqualified successes. There were a couple of qualified successes, uh, most recently one of their Phobos missions that was supposed to orbit Mars and then go and study Phobos, but and it did the Mars part of it fine, but when it turned to go to Phobos, there was a failure. So all the other Mars probes have had pretty much were failures. So, and then the Mars 96 never left Earth orbit. So everybody has got their fingers and toes crossed for Russia with this Phobos Grunt mission. And Grunt means soil, and it's a sample return mission, actually, from the moon Phobos. So this would be a tremendous achievement for Russia if they are able to pull this off. And interestingly, they have included China in this project, and China has an orbiter on this mission that will orbit Mars. It has an imager on it, and it's also going to be doing atmospheric studies. So th this is a tremendous mission for them, and, and hopefully the jinxed part of their experience with Mars will be over. And some of you may have read that uh, the European Space Agency is now turning to Roscosmos to see if they will become a partner in the ExoMars mission now that the U.S. has said that uh, we cannot provide a launch to Europe for part of that mission. In terms of rockets, they, Russia does have a lot of very reliable rockets. That doesn't mean that they're flawless, but they are reliable. The Proton is their largest. It's used extensively for commercial launches today, but also for... Uh, Russia's own launches. The Soyuz rocket, there's a Soyuz rocket and a Soyuz spacecraft. A lot of people get confused between the two, but the Soyuz rocket actually launches the Soyuz spacecraft and a bunch of other things, and that is the one that failed in August. There are different versions of it, and they have now launched three versions of the Soyuz successfully since that August 24th failure, and so uh, they are going to proceed now to uh, launch a crew because that had interrupted the crew rotation schedule on the International Space Station. They launch, as I mentioned, from Plasetsk to the equator, so they have a broad range of launch sites that they can launch from. They tried to develop a Saturn V rocket back in the 1960s when we had our Saturn V, but it failed, and most people have even forgotten about it, except now it turns out that the engines that were developed for that N1 rocket are going to be used for Orbital Sciences Taurus II rocket, and uh, they're being, it's now called the AJ-26. Uh, they later did finally build a Saturn V equivalent rocket, the Energia, but as I mentioned, they discontinued that after the Soviet Union collapsed and they didn't have money to support it. <clears throat> the engines for the strap-ons on Energia, however, are used for our own Atlas V. 
So when people talk about U.S. dependency on Russia, they are usually thinking about the space station, but we actually are also dependent on Russia for engines for the Atlas V and for uh, the Taurus II. So what's the future outlook for Russia? Uh, they make grand statements about plans they have for the future, Moon and Mars. They also talk a lot about solar power satellites and other things, that, other big infrastructure projects that they want to build in orbit. But uh, as is true in the United States, money is pretty hard to come by. But their dream endures. As I mentioned, the Mars 500 mission, it will actually end tomorrow. And uh, ESA is making a big deal about it. There's going to, I think you can watch on TV, you can watch the hatch opening to see these six guys come out after 520 days together. I hope they had showers. <coughs> And uh, Russia is a member of the International Space Exploration Coordination Group that is looking at pathways to future human exploration of the solar system. They're doing very well on commercial launch services. As I said, for space science, a lot is riding on the success of Phobos Grunt. And in terms of cooperation, everybody should bear in mind that these space cooperation programs take place in a much broader geopolitical context. So the Russian-U.S. space relationship today is interdependent. A lot of people say that we are dependent on Russia, but they need us too. So I really see it as an interdependent relationship. We are going to need Russia to take crews back and forth to the space station until a U.S. replacement is available. And I put U.S. in quotes, and you'll see why in a minute. And we're going to be dependent on them for lifeboats from the space station indefinitely. It may be that some of these new vehicles that are coming along, like Dragon or something, could be used as a crew return vehicle. I um, couldn't quite find what their on-orbit lifetime is. Maybe, Lynn, do you know? I don't know if they can stay up there for six months and be Our a lifeboat. Our requirements for future acquisition will be that we need them for six months. Okay. But anyway, for the in indefinite future, we're still relying on Russia for that. But they need our money to supplement their, uh, I hate to say $3.5 billion is meager, but their relatively meager uh, budget from the Russian government. And they also need a space station because it was clear that there was not going to be a replacement for Mir. <clears throat> for rocket engines, as I said, we we're dependent on them for the engines for the Atlas V, which launches our most precious national security payloads. And it's also perhaps going to be launching some of the new vehicles that are coming through the CC Dev program. And uh, Russian engines are used for the Taurus too. So some people do question whether or not these count as U.S. capabilities if we're still relying on Russia for the engines for them. And they need us as a market for their engines, again, as a commercial activity. There are people in the U.S. who object to the fact that we are dependent or interdependent on Russia, partially because of the national pride and prestige issue, partially because of the jobs issue, partially because it's risky to have only one way to get up and back to the space station, and of course it's always risky because of the ever-changing geopolitical relationships. But we did this to ourselves. We have no one else to blame. We're the ones who killed the crew return vehicle. We're the ones who terminated the space shuttle with nothing to replace it with, and we have not invested very much in rocket engine development. And it may be that we're going to need more waivers from the INXNA, and that's a long story that I won't go into today, but um, Bill Gerstenmeier has said in testimony to Congress that they are probably going to be asking Congress to give additional waivers to INXNA so that they can continue to buy ISS-related services from the Russians. There are three new books out, and I commend all of them to you. One is John Logson's book on JFK and the Race to the Moon. One is Mark Albrecht's book, Falling Back to Earth, about his time as director of the Space Council. 
And then there's another book by Asif Siddiqui, who has written the book about the history of the uh, Apollo era from a Soviet standpoint called Challenge to Apollo. But he has a new book out now with James Andrews called Into the Cosmos, Space Exploration and Soviet Culture. And it is fantastic. It really is. So I recommend all these books to you. Thank you very much. Thank you, Marcia, for that comprehensive and thorough, I would have to say thorough, overview of the past 54 years. All right, next we'll have Anatoly who just pull up his PowerPoint. And then just up and down. Um, so to go from down. one to... Okay, thank you. And I would like to thank uh, Marsha and Victoria for excellent, uh, excellent introduction. So I don't need to do it because it was the hardest part. And um, also um, thank you very much for inviting me uh, to talk on my favorite subject because my friends and family cannot get it anymore. <laughs> so, um, so I'm trying to uh, focus today on uh, Russian military space program. Um, and uh, of course, I have to probably uh, say uh, right away, repeat probably what Marsha said that it's uh, pr practically very difficult, especially at the origin of the um, Soviet space program, to distinguish between the two, whereas the civilian and military. And in fact, I think we can say that uh, in 1954, when uh, I sort of, for the um, uh, chronology's sake, I decided to start this uh, um, story, I think there was only a military space program. There was nothing else. And it was, in fact, uh, not only only military space program, but it was only one project. And this is the um, Soviet idea uh, to develop an um, intercontinental ballistic missile. Uh, and obviously that was um, uh, done because uh, of the problems with the uh, Soviet Air Force. And uh, they saw missiles as a sort of this way um, to outrun uh, the uh, U.S. Air Force and uh, to build the weapon which would be a sort of ultimate weapon of the Cold War. And of course at that time there were no, uh, absolutely no uh, any kind of goal or purpose to actually create a Soviet space program. Uh, obviously it was the idea to explore space was in the minds of a few uh, sort of enthusiasts of uh, Soviet space exploration since uh, let's say second half of the 19th century. However, at the political level, obviously there was only one, uh, only one purpose and only one goal uh, in the mid 50s is to build this, uh, to build this uh, enormous missile. And we see here the main milestones which uh, sort of um, um, uh, mark the history of the early Russian space program. It is 1954 when the Soviet government made the official decision to actually finance uh, development of this uh, rocket. And then 1955, when uh, they decided to actually to build a, a test range specifically for the missile, because uh, existing facilities were not um, uh, were not uh, suitable for uh, such a long uh, long-range uh, weapon. And uh, just two years after the construction of that uh, beginning of the construction of that site, in 1957, they actually started actual flight test of the R7 uh, missile, which we know today, of course. Uh, around the world as Soyuz uh, series of rockets. Um, what is interesting about this period is that not only 
it was only one project and it was purely military project. There was no uh, civilian agency or civilian organization uh, which would um, oversee or plan uh, any kind of um, civilian space activity. So it was purely military. And uh, as we see here, this uh, first family of uh, ballistic missiles which they built uh, uh, under R-7 program uh, essentially was converted into the launch, uh, space launch vehicle uh, very easily. Uh, essentially what they did, they just removed the uh, computerized uh, flight control system from the top and put, uh, removed the warhead and just put um, uh, regular payload fairing and small satellite and that was all uh, which was needed to actually start um, to launch the first satellite. Um, and um, uh, what's interesting is, uh, again, about which, which is uh, very different uh, from what was going on in the United States, um, where there was separate, separate civilian effort, uh, all semi-civilian efforts, but at least separate effort to launch the satellite and to develop uh, military missiles. Uh, in Soviet Union, it's essentially... Um, Karolev, who was in charge of um, uh, development of the R-7, uh, convinced the government with, uh, with uh, it took a lot of skills from him, political skills, to convince to use one of the rockets uh, during a test program to launch the satellite. And um, that was done, that was very successful, produced huge, uh, obviously, um, um, political effect, mostly in the United States, um, and later, uh, when the Soviet government realized that uh, it was a reaction, of course, in uh, in um, Soviet Union. However, what um, what interesting about it, Soviet Union very skillfully um, sort of um, advertised this effort as a civilian uh, as a civilian space program. And we know our perception I, I, I actually until this day, even with all we know now about uh, Soviet space program, we're still imagining uh, the first satellite as a, this um, little uh, metallic sphere which was flying in orbit. However, what's interesting, the real satellite looked this way, and you can see the little sphere in there. However, what's actually entered orbit was this huge ballistic missile. <laughs> and all these uh, memoirs of American eyewitnesses, which, which they say, oh, I saw this ball in the sky. No, what they saw is this huge military missile flying there, because the satellite was much smaller and actually not really visible. So what they actually saw is this missile, and we still have this perception of the idea that it was, uh, it was a civilian program, even though it was 99% uh, in funding level, in, in an effort, and a number of people involved, it was a military, uh, purely military effort. Uh, then in 1959, uh, there is a manned space flight effort starts, and it's again, there is a huge difference between what was going on in the United States and what was going on in the Soviet Union. And again, there is a, a big confusion. Uh, while uh, Mercury program, the first uh, program to launch American astronaut into space, it was a, a unique, uh, separate spacecraft developed uh, purposely for this purpose uh, of launching man in space. In Soviet Union, the only way to get money and funding to launch man into space was actually to use the same design, the same spacecraft, uh, which was designed to uh, do military, uh, military reconnaissance from space for, uh, uh, man, uh, for manned space program. And you see here on that slide uh, two uh, spacecraft. It's a Zenit spy satellite at the top 
And at the bottom, there is a Vostok, the, the first spacecraft which actually carried man in space. And, you know, you can find five differences probably, but they're extremely similar. It's a pretty much, uh, they took um, a capsule which was designed to return film, uh, reconnaissance film from space, and put a, a catapult for cosmonauts in, inside and use absolutely same design uh, to launch the satellite. And that's how... Um, that's one of the sort of uh, lessons uh, how skillful Karolyov was in pushing uh, manned space flight into the, uh, into the uh, realm of the uh, Russian space program. But again, uh, it was underlined, completely um, uh, uh, funded and um, um, managed by, uh, by the Russian military, by the Soviet military. Um, then we have, after uh, 19, uh, 1959, when the manned space program started, we have um, huge proliferation of uh, military space program in the uh, Soviet Union. Basically, every project which United States have uh, in, in um, development of space is mirrored, basically copied uh, by the Soviet uh, Ministry of Defense as a... Um, as a pretty much military effort, and you see a number of milestones for um, uh, organizational uh, management of the program, which was completely under, you see all these years, it was under Ministry of Defense, which uh, oversaw, launched, uh, and tracked uh, all the military uh, projects, including those which we perceive very often as uh, civilian. Um, And here you see in uh, in the sense of hardware, we see that, that little uh, Zenit satellite, which you see at the top left, um, which was the sort of um, prototype of the first manned spacecraft, it proliferates into, into many, many uh, reconnaissance satellites, satellites for cartography, for basically for visual, uh, visual optical reconnaissance of the Earth. And all those satellites are managed, by, again, by the Ministry of Defense. And, uh, by the way, this picture shows only a small fraction of what Soviet Union developed, let's say, in the 60s and 70s. Um, and um, beyond optical, uh, optical reconnaissance, Soviet Union starts, uh, like I said, it copies every um, American effort in space uh, in, on a military arena. So uh, following the reconnaissance, they start uh, building a program for early warning about incoming uh, missiles. Um, so they have OCAL program, which um, again, uh, looking at missiles from space. Obviously, uh, they start weather reconnaissance uh, uh, program, which is very important for the military. Uh, then uh, communication satellites, again, it starts uh, purely as a military effort. Uh, obviously, Russia is a huge country. It's uh, nine time zones, so they have to um, uh, communicate between uh, different uh, remote units. So they do that. Uh, GLONASS, of course, which was mentioned again, uh, it's again something which they define as a dual-use capability, and I have to mention it, of course, uh, also because it's, uh, first of all, uh, it's used by the, uh, has to be used uh, by the military. How it's used, that's another question. so, and then uh, satellites become more active, uh, sort of, on the military arena. Uh, they have so-called USA and USP program, which is uh, very little known. However, uh, this is used, uh, this, this, those satellites are used to actually track uh, NATO and American ships and uh, use this information this, uh, about location of those ships for uh, guiding uh, cruise missiles, mostly cruise missiles uh, based on, on Soviet submarines. So we see this proliferation um, of uh, space activities similar to what uh, was going on in the United States. 
And also, there's a last category is they used, actively use spacecraft for all kinds of calibration and testing of uh, ground-based radar and so on. Um, then, in sort of next stage of escalation of uh, sort of military activities in space, we have um, development of anti-satellite weapons. And uh, Soviet Union was extremely active in uh, doing this, um, uh, let's say, controversial uh, program. And uh, again, I list here a number of projects which uh, followed one another with more and more uh, capabilities. And again, I want to mention that it's only part of them. There are a number of more projects, uh, other projects, which also uh, had the same purpose of pretty much uh, um, blowing up satellites in space. Um, and uh, along with that, they start um, a program of uh, not only attacking satellites which are already on orbit, but a more difficult technically task of tracking and um, attacking missiles, uh, which obviously, as we know, uh, ballistic missiles have to go through upper atmosphere, uh, pretty much through space. So there is this idea of intercepting those missiles when they, in mid-flight when they uh, come to the top of the trajectory and um, blowing them up there. And then there is absolutely unique uh, sort of space, military space project, which um, I understand the United States also studied this idea, but never really deployed that weapon. And Soviet Union did go uh, far enough to deploy so-called fractional orbital bombardment system, which is pretty much a ballistic missile which uh, enters Earth's orbit and um, uh, flies in orbit until um, uh, it needs, uh, comes uh, relative to, uh, close to its target and then it re-enters the atmosphere and becomes a ballistic missile again and explodes. So the Soviet Union was the only country which actually uh, during the Cold War uh, deployed this missile using R-36 uh, ballistic missiles. Uh, and then uh, there is, again, uh, it was a very popular um, sort of topic in, in, in the press during the Cold War, was inspection of enemy satellites. And I understand that, again, uh, from sources we have, there were ideas uh, also uh, in the Soviet Union to explore that and do that uh, using military spacecraft. Um, then, like I said, um, um, anti-satellite program, uh, which uh, Soviet Union had, uh, it uh, went through several sort of reincarnations and several um, uh, phases. And uh, here, you, uh, here uh, you see main milestones for the development. And uh, we see that Andropov, who was the head of the Soviet Union in, uh, at the beginning of the 80s, uh, he actually uh, had this unilateral moratorium on uh, testing of anti-satellite um, anti, um, anti systems. However, uh, development uh, of the of the anti-satellite capability in, in Soviet Union continued all the way to um, to uh, 1991 when the Soviet Union collapsed, and that's important because now, of course, um, it is kind of uh, not covered in, in press adequately. However, there is a conversation apparently about resuming this kind of uh, this kind of program in Russia and especially in light of uh, Chinese anti-satellite test and, and the American test uh, later in 2008. Um, so um, along with that, um, there is a very um, active development um, on, let's say, on a theoretical level of creation of uh, so-called what we know today as Star Wars uh, Strategic Defense Initiative, uh, obviously, Soviet Union was very concerned about those, uh, this work, uh, those developments in the United States. 
So um, uh, Russia, Soviet government uh, made, um, uh, funded some initial research in this field. And you see here again several uh, projects which I list beginning from mid-70s as we know now, from very recently published sources that uh, development of lasers um, uh, started in Soviet Union in mid-70s. Uh, the way ideas actually using um, those space stations which uh, Marsha mentioned described first space station um, for actually carrying those weapons. And uh, the way ideas because the lasers, those laser guns were so huge and heavy uh, the way idea is to use proton rocket, which is, uh, can put 20 tons in space, and then uh, Buran, uh, which is a Soviet equivalent of the shuttle, for, for the same purpose. And uh, there were a number of projects in this, um, in this field. Um, there were, fi uh, there were um, plans by 1988 to actually launch... Um, uh, so-called battle stations, they called it in space, which would be actually riding into space on board this giant energia rocket, uh, which again was mentioned before. And um, there were a series of uh, progressively more uh, capable lasers which would be installed uh, on those platforms. Um, and um, what's interesting about it, only recently we have uh, first images of that actual uh, battle station, which you see here on the left uh, top uh, image, a very grainy image, which was um, uh, uh, carried into space on board Energia. However, what's more interesting for today is on the right of that photo, which uh, sort of only recently was um, identified, you see this little uh, in a circle, that's the uh, Naryat satellite, and that's a, a very uh, last generation of Russian anti-satellite system, which some people believe right now is being funded again and possibly being uh, developed. And of course, uh, you see here all the components of this uh, system, they're pretty much op uh, operational because they're used commercially for uh, rocket booster, which obviously used to launch uh, commercial satellites. So, um, so essentially this cap uh, capability does exist and possibly even uh, uh, being rejuvenated right now. Um, then, of course, we have at the end of the 80s uh, collapse of the Soviet Union. Uh, so uh, it's very important to say that there was major, major reorganization of uh, uh, so, uh, Russian Soviet military space forces, which became Russian space forces in uh, 1992. And uh, that's where um, most of the centers which today manage um, uh, Soviet space program uh, sort of originated and were formed as a uh, sort of as a, uh, entities. And you see here that uh, Svobodny Cosmodrome was um, added to the assets in 1994. The idea, of course, because of the uh, Baikonur was in Kazakhstan now, so the idea was to build a new launch site, and that's where, again, uh, Russian military uh, was represented, of course, uh, running this facility, which, by the way, was a missile base. Originally, it was built in the 60s as a missile base. Uh, then we have main test control center, um, which is now is known as the Titov uh, Center. What's interesting about this, it is very little known, and we all know, of course, uh, see pictures which NASA, sh NASA TV shows us uh, from uh, Russian Korolev Mission Control. What's in reality, this is sort of like a front. In reality, most of the Russian satellites are controlled from this Titov Center, not, not from Mission Control. And Mission Control in Korolev is simply uh, sort of uses information which uh, military ground stations and this uh, central nerve center provides them. And very often when um, 
difficult situation with Russian spacecraft really happens is it's those military officers who actually uh, doing the job of uh, controlling the spacecraft and sending the commands and uh, doing all the cr uh, crisis management. Um, and uh, so that's very important sort of to know about. Uh, and also uh, we have a number of uh, sort of educa educational institutions, uh, research and development, and um, um, uh, also, um, um, what's important, I think, to know is that in 1997, uh, Yeltsin administration made very controversial decision because of obviously because of financial situation, which was uh, at that time in Russia, to essentially merge uh, military space forces with uh, strategic missile forces. So they sort of were uh, given, uh, as they say in Russia, they were eaten up by uh, by the strategic missile forces. And um, if you talk to a former uh, uh, military officers who were involved in the military space program, there were a lot of complaints that during the 90s, uh, strategic missile forces simply neglected uh, or sort of um, underfunded uh, a lot of military assets, and that we have dramatic decline of um, uh, Russian military assets. Of course, main reason was money, but was also this organizational problem. And one of the first acts which uh, Putin did when he came to power was reverse the situation. Uh, of course, under new management and under new structure, however, what he did in 2001, he separated space forces again and made them into the uh, new, uh, new uh, type of uh, armed forces. And here I'm, um, we're coming to this latest, how to say, organizational reorganization. Uh, latest reorganization around 2009, and here you, you have uh, major assets of, again, uh, Plisetsk, is again this northern launch site where uh, all the uh, military launches take place, Titov Center, which I just described. Uh, then there's the sort of new responsibilities which are also uh, consolidated under military space forces. At, uh, this is um, particularly this chief center for outer space monitoring. This is an organization essentially which is responsible, it's a, like equivalent of NORAD in the United States and Canada, which is responsible for uh, watching the uh, space and orbit and watching for all artificial and actually natural uh, objects in space as well. And also we have the center for um, early warning on rocket attack, which is also part of their uh, um, uh, space forces right now. Then we have anti-missile defense units, which actually have active role of actually intercepting incoming missiles. Uh, again, we can argue about how, uh, how successful they can be in, in these days. Um, and again, educational and support and logistic units, uh, which support them. So uh, today, is, um, this is pretty much uh, uh, modern uh, nowadays role of uh, Russian space forces. It's early warning. Uh, defense of Moscow, you know that uh, in, during the Soviet Union uh, there was a sh uh, specific shield around Moscow was built. Uh, so that um, is, um, again, they're trying to renew and rebuild. Uh, space monitoring aspect, of course, is their responsibility. Research and development of future system um, systems and uh, launch and deployment of satellites, which remains still under, uh, partially under military control, even though some, some of the units and most of the units in Baikonur are demilitarized. However, in Plisetsk, all the launches from Plisetsk, no matter even if they are civilian or commercial, they're still done by, uh, by the military crews. Um, okay, and um, 
uh, here, um, of course, um, the main uh, problem for uh, Russia right now and looking forward into the next uh, few years is modernization of all those assets. The main challenge which they had, of course, is huge deterioration of uh, infrastructure and assets during the 90s. Uh, so now when uh, f- uh, funding improved, so they uh, going through a main um, uh, major, major uh, reorganization and modernization of those activities. You see that um, uh, uh, Titov main that mission control center is being uh, modernized in 2010 and a number of new ground stations are promised by 2020. Um, then we have, of course, uh, Soviet-era radar network, which was uh, responsible for tracking all the incoming missiles and space objects and so on. And you see here on this map that, of course, major, major installations looking uh, into the west and uh, into the north, they ended up to be in former republics, which are outside of the Soviet Union. So the new Russian government had a choice, either give up those uh, installations or rent them somehow or rebuild them inside Russia. And uh, the answer, of course, was, as you probably know from the press, is to rebuild them inside Russia. And you see the new map right now. They're trying to build uh, new facilities which uh, do exactly the same role. On this map, you see, by the way, the black is uh, the new radar and the green is the old one. And you see that what they're trying to achieve is exactly the same coverage which was during the Soviet period uh, to rebuild this now with um, with inside Russia, with stations inside Russia. Um, Here... Uh, we can see, I sort of wanted to see how, uh, to show how they look instead of these gigantic installations which were built uh, over like 20 years period in the Soviet uh, time now they build in much more compact much more capable as they say uh, systems and you see one of the um, early warning radars at the top and also they build in uh, this optical facilities which I think is the best equivalent in the United States is the station in Hawaii uh, which is uses optical sensors to look at satellites in orbit, and uh, there are a number of publications which says that the main purpose of this is anti-satellite, of actually guiding anti-satellite weapons uh, to their targets. Um, then we have um, uh, sort of a rejuvenation again and renewal of um, space activities. Uh, we have these two main categories. First of all, again, as I said, Russians are still uh, Russian military is still responsible for all the space launches. So there are a number of major programs which. They have in development right now. Uh, uh, first one is Angara, which is in development for 20 years, was delayed many, many years, so was supposed to fly um, in 1997, first time. Now it's promised to fly in 2013. Uh, they say that construction now is uh, actively underway in Plisetsk for the launch pad. It's a, a rocket which will eventually replace uh, Proton. Um, then we have, of course, our R7, our ICBM, which is now flying as uh, under name Soyuz 2. This is the latest generation of Soyuz vehicles. Uh, it is already operational, and uh, as Marshall just mentioned, there was the first launch uh, from uh, Kourou uh, in French Guiana, which uh, happened. But also they are um, uh, using it very actively in Plisetsk to launch military satellites. And they are uh, building a new uh, launcher, which is Soyuz 1, which will use actually propulsion unit from this uh, giant moon rocket uh, which was abandoned in the, in the 70s after several failures but the engine is very reliable and very good they testing it uh, very successfully right now in, in uh, both in Russia and the United States so this rocket is um, um, promised to fly for the first time next year and uh, testing uh, is promised to be completed by uh, 2014 
uh, then on a spacecraft level, uh, there, they have s- uh, several programs uh, for spacecraft development. Um, uh, mainly, may, uh, sort of, again, they classify them as dual use very often, but they are mainly military. Uh, Persona is used for uh, imaging reconnaissance, it's a last, latest generation spy satellite, pretty much. Lotus is electronic intelligence They're used to intercept uh, signal uh, signals from uh, from um, Earth surface. Uh, Meridian is a new generation uh, communication satellite, um, state of the art, as they say. Condor would be used uh, to um, uh, use radar, all weather uh, reconnaissance from from space. Uh, GeoIK was actually launched and successfully uh, this year, but the second satellite is coming. They will use it for geodetic research. Uh, Garpoon is uh, the program for um, uh, data relay. That's very si- this is very similar to um, uh, TDRS, American TDRS system, which picks up signal from uh, low orbiting spacecrafts and relays them to the uh, to the uh, ground stations. Of course, GLONASS, we all know what that is, and EKS is a new generation uh, of uh, early warning system, which has been uh, in development right now. Um, of course, uh, we all know about GLONASS, which is uh, dual use. Again, I, I sort of want to show how the second generation system uh, you, uh, looks like it's being deployed right now. Um, uh, w- uh, for the first time in many, many years, uh, they started launching it at the end of the, uh, in the 80s. Uh, for the first time in many years, they finally have entire constellation of GLONASS satellites uh, operational, and they promise more launches, and they promise to maintain it um, in uh, working order, as you see, for the next uh, several years. Um, they develop a uh, new uh, generation of uh, GLONASS satellite, which would um, uh, provide more accurate navigation, and of course, the main problem here is that uh, main complaint and main controversy around uh, GLONASS is that it's not as accurate as um, as uh, GPS. And um, they, uh, as you see here, they, they plan to spend $10 billion uh, 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 during the next uh, eight years for development. So there's this Russian proverb, uh, well, not Russian saying, that you saw in money. It's essentially you, you're spending money without much results. Um, but we know the similar controversies around uh, uh, also, European Galileo system. We will see. It's uh, the history is still being uh, been written, um, and um, uh, that's pretty much, I guess, uh, what's possible in 15 minutes. I guess to describe uh, Russian laundry list that's of nice. Russian Russian projects, uh, and of course, this is only tip of the iceberg. So I'm trying to track all, most of the Russian projects on this website. Um, and uh, adding and updating it as often as possible. Uh, so please, uh, of course, visit, and you can ask me any questions if you uh, if you're interested more in more details about those. Talking about the uh, accuracies, five meter right now, or in after the ten billion? Oh, um, you're talking about the accuracy of the of the system. Uh, where's that slide? Yes, I think right now they say that uh, for civilian uh, use at least, what officially advertised is five meter accuracy, which compares, of course, lower than uh, GPS can provide. And anybody who has, like I drive the car, and you can see that GPS probably does around two meters accuracy. 
so what GLONASS does, I don't have GLONASS uh, uh, receiver in my car, probably neither uh, any of you. Uh, however, uh, yeah, well, however, there were, there were news uh, very recently, which were headline, they were front page news in Russia that uh, Apple phone added uh, GLONASS capability along with GPS. However, it was... Uh, um, many Russians were so excited it was on the front pages of newspapers that Apple added this capability so they're coming around and uh, however how fast and how soon they will be able to match uh, GPS or Galileo or we know that China is developing a similar system that's the question again history has been written okay. thank you Anatoly for a very Thanks, Victoria, um, for that introduction a while ago. Um, so I'm going to be talking about um, Russia's space plans as they relate to their engagement in international organizations and bodies that negotiate space security and sustainability issues. Um, that My remarks today are going to be based on Secure World Foundation's involvement in those international bodies and my own personal observations and experiences in attending meetings in those fora. Um, so to kind of frame my presentation today, um, I focused on a key question and two answers that I came up with, that, with to that question. Um, the question being, what role does Russia currently play in international fora that address space sustainability and security issues? And the answer that I came up with, um, again based on my own observations, is that Russia still sees itself as and continues to act as a leading space power in these international institutions. And also, number two, um, another trend is that it's increasingly navigating between the other two dominant space powers, um, the United States and rising China. Um, this presentation is in no way an attempt to provide, again, just like the other speakers, um, a comprehensive or historical overview of Russia's engagement internationally on space. Um, it, again, it would be pretty much impossible to do that um, in a book, probably. So definitely not a 15-minute um, presentation. Um, so again, my um, those two trends that I am talking about with regard to Russia's role internationally on space um, negotiations is based on three cases that I'm going to talk about today. Um, and those correspond with the three key international institutions that engage on space issues and three specific governance efforts that are going on right now in those bodies. So I'll start with COPUS and the LTSSA Working Group. And then I'll move on to the Conference on Disarmament and the PPWT. And then I'm going to conclude with what I think is the most exciting and optimistic um, governance initiative right now, uh, which came out of the UNGA First Committee, and that's the Group of Governmental Experts, or the GGE. So starting with COPUS, um, for those who don't know, COPUS is shorthand for the United Nations Committee on the Peaceful Uses of Outer Space. Um, which is the international body that negotiates civil space issues. Um, it does this through the main committee meetings and also um, it's two subcommittees, which th are the legal and the scientific and technical. Um, on the whole, Russia has been very engaged and always has been very engaged at COPUS. Um, historically, they played a very formative role in that body as the Soviet Union. Um, the key international space law that we have right now, the Outer Space Treaty and its four supplemental treaties, were negotiated within COPUS, and the Soviet Union played a leading role on that along with the United States. 
Um, in current activities, Russia continues to play that leadership role in COPUS. They always send a very large delegation to the meetings. They always make official statements, and um, they play a very involved and active role in all of the working groups, subcommittees, and committees. Um, one of the current efforts to bolster space governance is the Long-Term Sustainability of Space Activities, or LTSSA Working Group, which was formed um, in COPUS in the past two years. The terms of reference for that working group were negotiated and finalized in June of this year. Um, Russia played that leadership role in that effort, um, but in this case it threw its leadership weight around um, in an obstructive manner. Um, they, that obstruct, obstructionism was focused on uh, Russia's concerns about private sector and non-governmental actors playing too prominent or strong of a role in the working group. Um, they were very concerned about the traditional state-centric format of UN activities being respected um, with this space sustainability effort. In the end, the terms of reference were um, finalized and agreed to, but they did incorporate Russia's preferred language, meaning that the NGOs and private sector actors could be involved in the working group, but they had to be filtered through a state representative. Um, so here we see um, that conclusion that I brought up in the very beginning, that Russia is still very much playing a leadership role in this um, space negotiating body, COPUS. Um, and we also see, too, that they're fostering a close relationship with China um, here as well. They often team up with China on efforts or initiatives in COPUS or vote together. Um, so that is the first international body. The second one that I'm going to talk about is the Conference on Disarmament um, and a particular initiative within the CD called the PPWT. Um, the Conference on Disarmament is uh, charged with negotiating space security issues. Um, it has four core issues that it has to negotiate, one of which is the prevention of an arms race in outer space or PAROS treaty. Um, unfortunately, the CD has been deadlocked for um, some 15 odd years since the 1990s. This is because it operates on consensus and at various times over those past 15 years, one or two member states have gridlocked the entire process by refusing to move forward on certain issues, some of which have nothing to do with space or a PAROS treaty, but because of the in issue linkage within the conference, um, PAROS doesn't get to move forward either. Um, but some activity has been going on on Paros in the past decade, and that has been led by Russia jointly with China. Um, and that is, um, gonna, I'm just going to focus on the PPWT, which uh, is formerly known as the Draft Treaty on the Prevention of the Placement of Weapons in Outer Space, the Threat or Use of Force Against Outer Space Objects. Uh, you can see why they've opted to call it the PPWT. It's a bit of a mouthful. Um, but the uh, PPWT, again, was jointly submitted by China and Russia to the Conference on Disarmament. It has three main goals, to prohibit the placement of weapons in outer space, to prohibit the use of force against outer space objects, and to prohibit the threat of use of force against space objects. Um, a brief PPWT chronology. Um, it started all the way back in 2002, so that's relatively recent in UN terms. Um, and China and Russia submitted a working paper to the CD in 2002 on this issue. In 2006, they submitted some suggestions on definitions of things like space weapons and the boundaries of space, um, verification and transparency. And then finally, in 2008, they uh, jointly submitted the official draft treaty to the CD. And just one year later, they also submitted a document addressing some of the major concerns complaints and comments that had been registered by other member states regarding the PPWT. 
um, including on issues of organization, verification, or lack thereof, the right to self-defense, definitions, scope of application, and dispute settlement. The PPWT is considered DOA by uh, the United States, um, who has effectively blocked any real efforts to negotiate it within the CD by China or Russia. Um, the current stance is that under the Obama National Space Policy, the United States will consider arms control agreements as long as they're effectively verifiable, which the PPWT in its current iteration, they argue, is not. Um, however, before this current um, national space policy was um, enacted by Obama in 2010, um, other complaints and concerns regarding the PPWT focused on the fact that it does not address at all ground-based anti-satellite weapons. Um, also, the fact that in, tr in, its, in its efforts to define a space weapon, um, you run into all sorts of issues with the fact that most space technologies and capabilities are dual-use in nature. Um, and so you've seen a real thrust in recent years to um, prohibit or prevent certain activities or behavior in space instead of technologies or capabilities or space weapons. Um, and also there's been some concerns that the PT PPWT is actually written in such a way to sneakily prohibit space-based missile defense, which is a whole other can of worms, and you can understand why the U.S. may not want to talk about that. Um, so here, too, in the Conference on Disarmament and with its PPWT efforts, Russia is playing a leadership role in these international negotiations on space issues. Um, it's also clearly navigating between the U.S. and China here um, because, obviously, they partnered with China on the PPWT, but uh, the U.S. does not want to negotiate the draft at all. Um, in my opinion, Russia has seemed a lot more flexible about the PPWT than China has been. Um, both have always emphasized their willingness to discuss the draft treaty in the appropriate forum, aka the Conference on Disarmament. However, in recent years within those um, fora and bodies, it seems like China is pushing a lot harder for the PPWT than Russia has been. And Russia also um, was sooner to say that other normative efforts or TCBMs, Transparency and Confidence Building Measures, or, say, a code of conduct for space could be pursued in conjunction with a Paros Treaty um, and that it doesn't have to be seen as um, that those two efforts are at odds with each other. Um, although very recently, China has been starting to use um, similar language as well. I think that Russia's flexibility on the PPWT is very likely tied to um, another initiative that it's really been pushing for in the last um, international body that I'm going to talk about, which is the UN General Assembly First Committee, which is the body that negotiates disarmament and international security issues, and so space security falls under its purview. Um, here, again, Russia plays a very active and leading role it has sponsored many resolutions regarding space within the first committee, including one calling for member states to submit their current um, and ongoing TCBM activities and efforts to the Secretary General. Uh, Russia almost always present, is one of the few states to present an official statement during the space thematic discussion. Um, and most recently and notably, Russia has played this leadership role in the first committee by sponsoring Resolution 6368, which called for the Secretary General to establish a group of governmental experts, or GGE, on transparency and confidence building measures, or TCBMs, in outer space activities, which um, Ban Ki-moon did do. 
The GGE initiative is not new or unusual to the UN system. It is often a favored method used for moving forward on issues in a slightly less formal or official matter than, say, sponsoring a resolution and then voting on it. Um, and it's not new for space either. There was a similar GGE on confidence building measures in outer space activities that took place from 1991 to 1993. And if you're interested in these um, topics, I really recommend that you read the report that came out of that GGE because the recommendations that they came up with, um, the similarities between the issues that we're dealing with today and the recommendations then are really remarkable. I mean, I think we can learn a lot from that report instead of trying to reinvent the wheel um, with this coming GGE. Um, some information about the GGE that's coming up is that it will convene for the first of its three meetings next summer from July 23rd to the 27th in New York. The next meeting will take place in Geneva um, in 2013, um, April 1st to the 5th, and then the last meeting back in New York um, from July 8th to the 12th. Only 15 member states are allowed to send experts to the GGE, and as you can imagine, there are a lot more than 15 states who want to. Um, the permanent five members of the Security Council always get a seat on the GGEs, so that leaves only 10 seats for other countries to bid for. Um, and as in all other UN activities, the composition of the GGE will have to reflect geographic balance and fairness. Um, the, as I understand it, the UN Office of Disarmament Affairs, UNODA, fields all of these bids, um, both for seats and also for the chairmanship. Um, and they don't really make that decision until a couple months before the first meeting. So we'll have to be looking out for that next year. Um, Russia, because they sponsored the resolution calling for the GGE, is a favorite to chair the group, which will again give them another opportunity to play out this leadership role in space um, international negotiations. Um, however, it's not decided that they will chair the group. It's not a foregone conclusion. So that is also something to keep an eye out for. Um, and it's also going to be interesting to see because um, they, at the same time, sponsored a resolution in the first committee calling for an information security GGE or cybersecurity. And um, they can't chair both, again, because the UN really values these uh, fairness uh, principles. So um, it'll again be interesting to see um, what they end up chairing. And again, the composition of that group will be interesting because it will come to bear on the, the ability of that GGE to really produce any real tangible results. Um, Russia has made it incredibly clear, obviously they sponsored the resolution, that they are very supportive of the GGE and optimistic about um, the report and the recommendations that's going to come out of it. Um, they have also made it clear recently that they're not going to discuss the PPWT in the GGE, which I'm sure is a huge relief to the United States. Um, and I think, in my opinion, makes it easier for the United States to throw their full weight behind the GGE um, and come out very vocally in support of that initiative, which they have. Um, and again, so again, the fact that they sponsor this resolution, that they really push for this GGE to be established, shows that they're playing a leadership role in these international bodies that negotiate space issues. But then also here too, I think the most, most prominently, you see that they're navigating the relationship between the two other space powers, the United States and China. Um, they're, you know, China is their partner on the PPWT. China cares a lot about the PPWT, but here is Russia kind of throwing its weight behind um, an, another initiative where they're not going to bring up the PPWT in order to, um, I think, respect the U.S.'s concerns about that draft treaty, um, and also so that they don't undermine the, the, the chance for the GGE to succeed. Um, I think uh, there was another point that I wanted to make about that. Um, 
yeah, I'm not sure, but maybe I'll think about it later. Um, in conclusion, um, I wanted to return to that key question that I asked, um, you know, and those two answers, that the role that Russia is currently playing in these key international bodies um, that address space security and sustainability issues is, again, they're, tr they're maintaining their leadership role that they have always played. Um, and they're also increasingly navigating that relationship between China and the United States. Um, and looking forward to, I think we can also ask, like, how, how will Russia, what role Russia can play going forward, especially with so many um, very exciting um, space governance initiatives on the table that address space, or try to forward space sustainability. Um, they, uh, Russia, again, is very actively engaged in all of these key bodies. Um, they are involved directly or indirectly in leading many of those space governance initiatives. Um, and I think, too, um, especially with the, what you saw with their activity um, at COPUS this summer with the LTSSA working group, they're also viewing these international bodies as a place where they can maintain their leadership position um, in space negotiations. They're really pushing for the traditional state-centric format to be respected, which is something that they, you know, they're familiar with and that they know how to play in. Um, Again, returning to that second trend, though, that they're navigating increasingly between um, the, the other established space power that they've always been working with, the United States, and then this rising China, um, I think it's really interesting to watch that relationship and um, see how it uh, shapes the way that international space negotiations go. Um, thankfully, uh, there's a very strong foundation of cooperation and dialogue between the United States and Russia already. And it seems to be the mindset that U.S. and Russia have kind of gotten it figured out when it comes to space issues in the space domain. Of course, there's still differences that exist between the two countries. But for the most part, there's no longer systemic mistrust and misunderstanding between the two countries um, like there was during the Cold War and also, again, structures for communication and interdependence already exist and are entrenched. Um, and in my opinion, perhaps that's why Russia has been able to pursue a very special relationship with China and partner with them on so many initiatives internationally um, without provoking the same level of mistrust and suspicion in the U.S. as China does on space issues. Um, which I think is really interesting. Um, another thing that I wanted to just conclude with is that Graham Allison and Robert Blackwell published a very short article in the Politico either this week or last week on the 10 reasons why Russia still matters. And they looked at everything from economics to politics um, to, uh, to military issues. But I think it really, their seventh reason why Moscow still really matters um, really comes to bear on this discussion today. Um, and that seventh reason was that um, Moscow is an important player in today's international system um, and still is, even though some people may um, diminish their importance. Um, and the conclusion that Allison and Blackwell came to is that the US, if, the U, if the US and Russia could see eye to eye on more issues and if the U.S. could bring Russia along more um, in pursuit of its interests, then it could significantly facilitate a peaceful transition for China emerging as a global power without upsetting the current international order, um, which I'm sure you know everybody in the room is very smart, and you can see how that totally relates to the, everything that I've been saying in this presentation. Um, it's clear that there really exists um, a really a great opportunity right now um, with space security and sustainability and these space governance initiatives for Russia to play that 
that brokerage role um, for China as an emerging power. Um, they obviously have the ear of China in a way that uh, the U.S. definitely does not. Um, and I think it'd be interesting to see if we can make use or manage that special relationship um, in a way that helps bring China, helps China emerge as a really responsible space power um, instead of letting it turn into an us versus them type situation, which it already has been used as and can continue to be used as if not managed correctly. Um, and in my opinion, maybe we already see this happening with these current initiatives, um, especially with regard to the evolution of dialogue about TCBMs and the PPWT. As I mentioned earlier, Russia was the first to start talking about TCBMs or other normative efforts like a code of conduct in a more positive light um, and talking about it as um, not as an alternative to a treaty or, a P or the PPWT, but rather things that could be pursued in parallel or in conjunction or as supplements to treaty efforts. Um, and now China is saying the same kind of thing. It took a little bit longer for them to do that, um, but they are using the same kind of language, especially, especially very recently at the first committee, um, but just a year or two behind Russia. Um, so in my opinion, again, it's really hard to prove cause and effect in these matters, but um, I think it shows the potential for Russia to bring China along toward common understanding and bring them along um, as a responsible space power um, and also help promote success um, in these many space governance and norm-building efforts that we have on the table right now in the international community. Um, so that's kind of my take on the role that Russia has been playing in the international community and in the key international organizations that deal with space issues. Um, and I'm happy to answer any questions to the best of my ability. So thank you for listening. Thank you, And since we're, you know, had some long but interesting presentations there, we'll just go straight to the Q&A. Um, I would ask that you wait for the mic and that you identify yourself. So questions in the back, sir. Brian, we just your role. A question for Anna Foley. Uh, you talked about how during the Cold War, the Soviet Union and the U.S. ended up pursuing many of the same capabilities in space. How much of that do you think was because of the competition? And how much was because they both had the same needs in terms of uh, uh, things for military application and other support? Well, okay, uh, difficult question and sort of philosophical, but I think it's a little bit of both. However, it is a lot of sort of anecdotes and jokes in Russia uh, as uh, the best thing to get funding for any space project is to show the government that Americans are doing it. <laughs> so uh, so it, it's enough to bring a little um, article in um, Flight International or Aviation Week uh, to the uh, Politburo and say, look, uh, they're developing a laser platforms in space, even though the article very often says that, oh, some scientist proposes something. So what I'm saying is it, it was very important for, for the Soviet government to react to every uh, potentially military move in the United States and parallel it with, uh, with the Soviet effort. And you, uh, of course the, the biggest and sort of uh, the most tragic example of this is the Buran program because it was developed as a sort of a mirror response of the, of the space shuttle program and when it came online, when it was ready, there was not a single payload uh, except those laser uh, battle stations which I mentioned. Uh, to actually carry it, to put on that spacecraft. 
So essentially, it made the single flight. And uh, as soon as um, uh, Russian Ministry of Defense had uh, financial problems, they said, oh, well, sorry, we don't really need it. We don't have a single payload uh, to fly on this thing. So years of efforts, thousands of people, uh, hundreds of uh, companies uh, spend their efforts for pretty much uh, nothing just because the United States were doing it. Um, I, this question is for Marsha and Anatoly. Um, I'm sorry. Not a lot of ideas. Um, I, I've been reading articles recently that talk about either important military officials in Russia or um, other high-level officials lamenting um, the state of the space program and saying, you know, we need more investment in X, uh, you know, we're, we're going down this really negative road. And my question is, and you know, based on what you were saying, Marsha, about you know, they still have certain plans and moving steadily in, in, in that direction. Um, what is the audience of these very dire comments? Is it us, the U.S., um, or is it Russia internally to, to kind of bolster support for more funding? Oh, okay. Um, well, I think the Russian space budget um, was growing steadily since uh, since I think 2000. It was it was going up, and I think it's, it's it is uh, continues going up. I think the problem is is that because of this 20-year gap, which happened in um, uh, after Soviet Union collapse and and um, uh, following chaos and disorganization and attempts to uh, you know preserve whatever whatever they could. Um, right now, they have this generation gap in the industry. They have a lot of inefficiency uh, sort of inherited from the Soviet period, which doesn't work in the modern world. Um, so the system is very archaic, and they're trying to repair it and, and keep going at the same time. So their, pro their program is definitely re-evolving. So it's, it's hard to say, it's, oh, it's really uh, not enough money. I think. A lot of people actually say they have more money than they can actually digest now with the capabilities which they have. So it's a matter of, it's almost like, uh, you know how a person who spent uh, uh, underground for a very long time, you can't put them on the sun uh, really quickly. So I think Russian space program has a similar situation. They, I think they have, uh, maybe they would love to have more money, as again, a hungry person would like to uh, eat really quickly. But I think it's dangerous because they have to digest those, uh, the, this money and these funds carefully because uh, their capability uh, have to be rebuilt uh, from scratch. Am I answering the right question or not? Yes. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Any other? No. Uh, I'm Sam Brothers. I'm with the uh, Aerospace Industry Association. Um, this question is primarily for Mr. Zach, but if anyone else thinks they can answer it, uh, more than welcome to you, obviously. Um, can you give us a sense of what the perception is of U.S. space activities, particularly U.S. military space activities, among Russian policymakers? Well, uh, it's hard for me to guess what uh, um, Russian pol uh, policymakers think, but however, from their actions and from the official speeches, what they do, it's, it seems to me that they really appreciate what the United States are doing, and they, um, they do, um, at least Putin, in his speeches, uh, he always uh, stresses that um, United States have very impressive uh, military and space uh, 
uh, space capabilities and Russia has to uh, catch up. <coughs> yeah, that's, that's my impression. However, again, um, it's obvious there is a huge gap and there is a huge uh, difference between what uh, Russia is today and what the United States can afford. So essentially they, they have to, cho uh, to choose very carefully uh, where to invest uh, relatively limited funds, which they have, and um, how they're choosing uh, those priorities. That's, that's a big argument, and you can see this argument very often reflected in the Russian press, in online discussions which are going on, and people talking also within themselves. So uh, it's very controversial what, what exactly, what directions they need to go. Um, Anatoly, if I could just build on that question, I mean, it seems from what I heard from you asking, or you saying earlier, is that there are a couple of things the United States and Russia shares. Um, we both have aging workforces in the space industry, mm -hmm. and we both are kind of in an angsty period where we don't know what to do next. Um, I'm wondering, is the Russian public, do, do they support space as something like a national power? You know, it's something that the country does. Um, do Russians see space as something that's part of their daily lives? Does the Russian military think it needs it for the future of its applying its forces, or is it again is it something that Russia does because Russia does it? Uh, yes, I think uh, I think my impression is that there is a sort of um, similar situation in Russia in society to what's going on in the United States. Yes, Russians are proud of their space uh, legacy, but they're also very often cynical about that. So they say, I showed you this cartoon, which appeared in a very popular uh, uh, Russian uh, publication. Um, so essentially this uh, terminal that they saw in money, that they spend in money for the sake of spending money without producing results, uh, this is very often in below the official circles and below the you know officially controlled newspapers and television stations. Yes, you hear the conversations very often there where people are cynical, uh, people think that it's a waste of money and they have to help elderly, they have to spend this money on all other social programs. Exactly the that kind of debate you hear in the United States and read it uh, every day. Great, uh, right there. Next one. Uh, I thought uh, Marsha and uh, Anatoly were talking about Angora and even older launch vehicle engine being converted to uh, a next generation. So what does it tell you when uh, a rocket that started um, in what is it, for Angara, uh, when you base your future on designs uh, 20 and 30 year old, what does it tell you about the state of the whole industry? Yeah, Angara, as they say, um, they joke again that Angara is old enough to get married now uh, and go to the army. So, uh, yes, it started actually in 1993. Uh, the, the idea, uh, the, the, the goal of this project is to give Russia uh, new independent capability from Baikonur, is to build a new launcher uh, with the heavy lifting capability like Proton has right now, 20 tons into low orbit. Uh, and base it inside uh, Russia, which is in Plisetsk. There are a number of problems uh, which this program faced. Um, first of all, it was not funded for, for 10, 15 years. The real funding really started in around 2005. So uh, then there was a problem with basing the, such a uh, uh, heavy launcher in Plisetsk. Plisetsk is very far away in the north, Obviously, uh, anybody who knows basics of uh, um, 
how it's called, space mechanics knows that you lose a lot of uh, payload capability when you launch from the north. You have to put the launcher like that, preferably in Baikonur or in Cape Canaveral, and even better in Peru. That's the best place for the for the rocket like that. So um, design-wise, yes, the architecture of the of the rocket to have a modular rocket is designed as where you can assemble use the same standard modules to assemble uh, different uh, capabilities for payload. Uh, is relatively good. Nothing really, um, well, it was conceived, let's say, 20 years ago, that nothing wrong really happened to it. It's still, if you have this, if you build this, uh, it will work. Uh, so nothing wrong with it. However, uh, again, the, the situation is the way, the question is the same, sort of related to Buran. If they build this heavy launcher in Plesetsk, what exactly are they going to launch? What 20 ton uh, satellite are they going to launch uh, from Plesetsk? Uh, that's a big question. Um, the second uh, question is, of course, will they be able to complete the program? That's now the bottom line is, 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 is so far behind schedule, and, and um, um, the ro nothing wrong with the rocket itself. It just needs to fly. It's no good when it's, when it's just in development for 20 years. I just had, you know, uh, I think your question had to do with the investment mm -hmm. in rocket engine technologies and whether or not that tells you something about the state of the Russian investment in these things. And of course, the Americans don't have much to say to that because we have not invested very much in rocket engine technology either. And that's why we're using N1 engines for the Taurus II. I mean, these really are legacy projects. We're using the J2X for, you know, and that's based on Saturn V rocket. So I think it says something about investment in rocket engine technology. And I'm not a rocket scientist, but I do hear that the Russian rocket engines really are the best in the world. And so you know, the US is taking advantage of that. And so is Russia. But I think there is something to be said there about the need to invest in rocket engine technologies, whether it's here or there. My name is Mark Brenter, and I'm the executive director of the GOI Foundation. The GOI Foundation provides free satellite imagery to universities and NGOs around the world. Both GOI and Digital Globe are commercial remote sensing companies. Does perhaps only and then Marsh, if you can add anything to it. What are the uh, similar companies or entities in Russia that provide commercial satellite imagery at very high resolution? GOI is building a new satellite for launch uh, next year, and the ground resolution will be a uh, 13-inch ground resolution. Uh, does uh, Russia have doing any plans to do systems similar to that? So let me put it this way again: uh, Russia, in the 90s, there was a lot of um, sort of optimism related to uh, providing commercial imagery to uh, uh, to commercial users. Of course, they were advertising all suddenly they unclassified all these military uh, assets, military satellites. Um, however, then the question immediately, when they, they said, okay, we have all this. Then the commercial user said, okay, we want this conveniently delivered to us. We want to have uh, constant access. We want um, all kinds of capabilities related the way private businesses operate when there is a contractor and contractor deliver, delivers according to uh, specifications or agreed contract. And that's where all the problems started. Uh, essentially, oh, well, yes, we have the satellite, but it's controlled by um, uh, General Reconnaissance uh, uh, Office of the Ministry of Defense. Sorry, but you have to go through all these uh, channels to get, um, to get uh, permission and so on. So there were huge obstacles 
on actually creating Western style uh, marketing system for um, organizing um, uh, distribution of the symmetry. There were also technical problems because the, the, the Russian assets were, like I said, they were, they were losing their capability, the satellites were not renewed, and so Russia sort of fell behind. It's, it's, they pretty much gave up um, the idea of marketing um, commercial imagery alongside with um, the, the small Western companies which were doing that. Uh, that said, they still they tried their best to preserve the capability to do it. They have the new satellite called uh, Resource DK-1, which is uh, officially dual-use satellite. It's flying now. So it was launched in 2006, I think, or 2007. Um, and this satellite is exactly they're trying to match this uh, latest capability in the West the best they can. They develop a new uh, version of that satellite, Resource P, which will replace Resource uh, DK, and uh, um, we will see. They might try to um, come up. They recently uh, published a new website where you can access satellite imagery. Uh, but in general, experts in this field, uh, and you probably know it much better, they say that so far it's, it's far behind of what Western companies uh, provide in this, in this area. However, they working in this direction. They did not, did not give up the idea of uh, providing a satellite imagery to commercial users. All I heard was that back when we were only offering five meter imagery, so this is how long ago it was, that they were offering two meter imagery. And so that's why it looked as though there was a market for them. But they never could do the turnaround times the customers wanted. So even though they had that <coughs> resolution commercial imagery, the customers just really weren't interested. So as far as I know, that I didn't even know that they were trying to resurrect that, but I thought they could pretty much fall by the wayside. It, 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 it's even kind of hard for me to tell what other uh, resurrecting. They sort of supported this capability at the minimal level. They funded a resource program. So they now have a new generation satellite, which they launch, and we will see if they will try to enter the market or not. They probably actually want to know themselves how, uh, <laughs> how, how workable it is going to be. A new job for you, Mark. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, mainly for Marsha, but maybe also for uh, When General Permanov was still at Roscosmos, he was talking about second generation space stations, lunar bases in the late 2020s, and Mars, the 2035 24 40 time frame for humans. Uh, now, General Popovkin has said he's going to de-emphasize human spaceflight. Can you speculate a little bit? And I think if I read it correctly that Mars is now past 2050. Uh, well, I, I have not seen a recent date from Roscosmos for sending humans to Mars. I think that what you're hearing is pretty much what's reflected here in the States. You know, well, it's press, it, it, it was a Russian press group. It was Novosti. Well, I think that there was a strong desire on the part of space advocates there in here to have these grandiose missions to the moon, Mars, and other places, but the funding just is not there. The space science program has really been starved since the collapse of the Soviet Union. What I've seen uh, him saying is that he wants to re-emphasize space science, so he may be trying to rebalance his portfolio. I guess that's my question. Is there any more top-level commitment to human spaceflight? 
in Russia than there is here? Uh, not that I'm aware of, but Antoinette. Well, I would just add that I think the manned space flight is very important for Russia because it's a sort of national treasure, almost. So they cannot, uh, either it's Popovkin or not, it would be a political suicide for him to say, you know, I will cancel manned space program. However, he did say what exactly what you're referring to. Uh, that was extremely bold and unexpected for me. And um, I would say that um, this is very bad news for uh, man's space program if Popovkin is, with all the Putin's speeches and with all other declarations, can say things like this. Um, we can, again, argue about what, what the balance is. Obviously, he's absolutely right about that man's space program uh, is the main, uh, is the most expensive line item in the Russian space budget. Um, and how useful it is, we can argue about that. However, it is a major sort of shift of priorities. And by the way, there was also the, the, the strategy shift as well under him, because um, all the strategic research which was done by um, under Fermino, um, uh, uh, which was done within this magistrate project, which was uh, sort of, uh, uh, how to say, it's, it's, it's a big, they did the strategic uh, planning for uh, the next 40 years, it's actually emphasized Mars. Mars was before the moon uh, during Permanent. And uh, Popovkin uh, came and said, uh, uh, essentially he said, no, that's not going to happen. If we have international uh, agreement on manned space flight, we will go to the moon first. Uh, it needs to be done internationally uh, with the United States and Europe being involved. And that's uh, essentially the Russian policy, I understand right now, in manned space flight. Is uh, we need an agreement where all sides will share um, uh, sort of a financial burden of that, of that program. Um, I do have one last question, and then I'll go back to the crowd. Um, one issue that was not discussed was the idea of space debris. Um, as you guys know, obviously, um, we have a lot of space debris up on orbit, and it's at the point now where it's not enough just to stop making it. We have to actually take some down. Um, NASA studies have shown that the good news is you only need to do five large pieces a year in order to fix this. The bad news is a lot of those large pieces are ex-Soviet and Russian rockets. I'm curious to know what the panel thinks about the likelihood of either Russia getting involved in an international effort or if they're establishing their own active renewable program. Well, my I'm not aware of that. Yeah, my feeling is that it will need to be international agreement, and the first thing which would Russians will probably say, uh, who's going to pay for this? Uh, it's, <laughs> it, it will need to be, uh, they will, their engineers and their scientists would love to do something like that, uh, to build a system to pick up. Uh, they have a number of projects on, the pa on paper, but uh, again, money is not there at this point. Because another thing that Marsha brought up was that 
uh, Russia has touched on all the space science areas, but then they don't have something like Hubble. So they have less, less influence maybe in these science-based organizations. So I was just wondering if um, that has any influence over how they act, or are they acting like less of a leader, um, and what are the implications of that? Um, unfortunately, I, I did focus all of my efforts on those, um, those primarily international security um, negotiating for us, so I didn't look specifically at the scientific bodies. Um, but I, def I absolutely agree with Marcia that all of these things are interrelated. Um, and you see even that happening with, again, um, issues within just the first committee. Um, the cybersecurity issue is going to come to play on the, the space security issues and already has. Um, and the, the geopolitical relationship that, that the U.S. and Russia has obviously um, will influence the way that they work together on space issues. Um, but unfortunately, I did not look at um, any specifically scientific bodies. So, uh, but I can look into that, and if uh, you want me to follow up with you, I can certainly do that. Do you mean scientific bodies like COSPAR? That would be the Committee of Space Research. Even GEO. Well, I think that the Russians are very active in COSPAR. They always have been, and they do present scientific papers. It's just that the data are not Russian satellite data. But they do a lot of analysis of data from American and European satellites and the like. And so I think that there are a lot of top Soviet Russian space scientists. It's just not data from their own spacecraft. But they are very active in this part. Uh, just to jump in, um, the Russians have the ISON, um, Space Situational Awareness Network, and that's run by a series of scientists. And they've been doing a lot of work in the idea of sharing your data, um, whether it's with the United States government or it's with um, more commercial interests. And so I think that's where they may be playing a leadership role. Of course, the question is always, how do we sh make sure the data is done at a time you're not hurting national security concerns or commercial concerns as well? Okay. Questions? Yeah. Uh, it's more of a comment on what was being discussed on the human space flight. Now, uh, Russia, I just wish to comment that their first uh, human space flight almost ended in a disaster. So, as you rightly mentioned, their spacecraft was not modified, uh, uh, not made really uh, human safe. So, when the astronaut came out of the hatch, the space suit which he was wearing, expanded the more than the, which uh, expected and he could not go back inside <laughs> and somehow he did uh, locate a small uh, ball and he was able to uh, release the pressure and that is how he could go back so so also and all this was done in case just to beat the Americans and see that they uh, they you know just to give a big lead they have a big lead over the Americans similarly just now a comment on the mass uh, <coughs> mission. Yes, at the present it seems only the United States has a declared uh, mission uh, uh, to Mars. And I think I, uh, uh, Lockheed Martin is developing the, uh, the, the space gaps with the Orion. And I did have an opportunity to But I wouldn't be surprised if suddenly the Russians also scramble for the Mars. Just to comment this one. The other thing is about the uh, remote sensing satellites or the imagery. India is, the, is, is having a program called Cartosat uh, program for Earth, uh, uh, remote sensing. Cartosat 3 
has a uh, resolution of 80 centimeters. Cartosat 4 is having, will be having a resolution of 30 centimeters. Just uh, by your all right, we're being um, close to the time. Um, any last questions for our panel? <coughs> no pressure, but I think you're the last one to make it a good one. Connie Cremins with the Tech Trans International. This is, of course, Ms. Ms. Chow. In the fora that you've been uh, analyzing and observing, why is the United States not working directly with China? What do we hope to get out of the Russians working with China and, and getting something out of that. Uh, you, you had observed that with Russia, through our space program, we've been able to break down a lot of walls and get a lot of insight. Why aren't we taking that approach with China? And what is Russia going to do for us in this equation? Um, can you hear me okay? Um, so interestingly enough, I attended a hearing yesterday on the Hill um, where um, the Office of Science and Technology Policy at the White House and NASA had to testify um, in front of the House Committee on Oversight and Investigations or something like that because um, Congressman Frank Wolf has written it into legislation that NASA and OSTP cannot use any federal funds whatsoever to talk to, cooperate with, partner with China whatsoever. Um, and this hearing was because OSTP took meetings and had a dinner with um, Chinese representatives on innovation policy um, and spent a total of a grand whopping total of $3,500 and now they're being, um, you know, submitted to the Attorney General to be persecuted because they um, broke the law. Um, so I think it's, a, it's largely driven by domestic politics um, and also, of course, within um, the defense establishment, there are people who are very suspicious of and concerned about um, China rising as a global power and what its intentions are behind its space program. It's still very opaque um, and uncertain who, um, again, what the intentions are behind um, all of Russia's, I mean, sorry, China's um, uh, motivations behind um, investing in its space program and its, its um, missions there. It's um, very unclear. Um, and in the same way that it has been in the past with um, Russia and the United States, that um, you know who is running the space program in China? Is it a civil, a civilian-led um, effort, or is it military? Um, and again, the I, I mean, I just think that there's a lot of suspicion and mistrust about China in the United States, not just um, on its space program, obviously. And there's a lot of domestic forces um, wanting to make it very, you know clear that we're not allowed to work with them on these kinds of things. Um, so I think that that's, all, all of those kind of reasons contribute to why we're not pursuing more um, an overt relationship or cooperation with China, especially in these international fora. Um, and again, the, the, um, the structure for cooperation with Russia has existed for a long time and, and the dialogue and communication channels have, have existed and, and have worked for a long time. And so I think it's a lot more um, of a clear uh, uh, relationship to work with them um, and to partner with them and cooperate on different things. Um, but that doesn't exist at all for China. And again, it's still um, unclear how China is going to play in the space realm and, and uh, what their motivations are behind their space program. And so. Um, and again, those, those issues of mistrust and suspicion and um, domestic politics here in the United States. So I think that are, those are part of the reason why we don't pursue a relationship with them um, the way that Russia can and has. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.
just as a follow-up, when we started to before we started cooperating with Russia, we had very much of the same mm -hmm. suspicions, the same, uh, you know, just expecting the worst. Uh, why is it? Why are we afraid to directly engage with China? Oh. I mean, I know it's against some laws to do that, but it was against the law to do that with the Soviet Union. Mm -hmm. We started talking with them. Mm -hmm. Is it, it going to stick harder with China? I I have no idea. I think it, it's again like um, to borrow from Antoine's phrase earlier. History is still being written on that. Um, it's. You know, that is an issue that came up that people were fighting back and forth on in the hearing yesterday. People, you know, who are against talking with China or cooperating with them were saying that the way that we brought down the Soviet Union was by completely isolating them. And then other people were saying, no, 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 it's because we were cooperating with them and working with them on things that um, helped, you know, the Soviet Union collapse. Um, and so I think there's, uh, it's not an argument that, or, you know, there's no answer to that. And. Uh, I think Secure World Foundation is very much of the opinion that cooperation is the way forward and, of course, um, very balanced and managed relationships um, internationally. Uh, it's not just cooperation for cooperation's sake, but, and of course, there are national security concerns that have to be taken into consideration, but um, again, it's not, it's still being played out very much right now. I mean, literally right now. So um, I, I, I don't know how it will go, but it's definitely something to watch. We shall see. Yeah. Um, any last thoughts from the panelists? Okay, please join me in thanking the panel. It's been a fascinating discussion.